But that pandemic was accompanied by another epidemic that was the subject of a 1990 film starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. What disease was responsible for that epidemic? So again, that epidemic paralleled the flu epidemic of uh, 1918-1919, pandemic, I should say. And uh, there was a movie in 1990 starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. So the question is, what disease was uh, portrayed in the movie and what was this actual disease that really occurred in the world? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text at 514-800. And I do have a second question for you as well, uh, which I think should be an easy one, hopefully. Why must bleach and vinegar not be mixed? Why must you never mix bleach and vinegar? Again, 514-790-0800. Text comments, questions to 514-800. And of course, you can ask questions about anything that pertains to the world of science. Uh, I don't know if I can always answer it, but you, anyway, you can ask the question. If I don't know the answer, we will do the research and get back to you. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense and fact from myth which, of course, is very challenging these days, and there certainly is no lack of, uh, of su- subject matter. Uh, obviously, we deal a great deal with uh, uh, the coronavirus and what can and cannot be done. And this past week, uh, certainly there was this optimistic report from Merck about the possible uh, introduction of an antiviral medication that can keep people out of the hospital. And uh, this is a medication that will interfere with the virus's ability to replicate by somehow inactivating its RNA. Uh, This, of course, would be uh, most welcome. And um, Merck is going to ask for emergency authorization from FDA. And obviously, if we can keep people out of the hospital, uh, that would be great. And uh, we are uh, keeping people out of the hospital as long as they are vaccinated. The uh, latest research, uh, uh, specifically from Quebec, is that you are 30 times more likely to be hospitalized uh, from uh, COVID-19 if you are not vaccinated. And uh, there is a significant increase uh, in uh, people who are being diagnosed with the uh, with the condition, or at least with, with symptoms, uh, who are not vaccinated. Uh, okay, well... Uh, there are many, many other things, of course, that we're going to discuss here today. But uh, I do want to get down to talking about a very interesting chemical concept that I want to um, hopefully explain to you because it is really quite important in, in uh, pharmaceuticals. Let's start with mirror images. You know that everything has a mirror image save for, of course, one possibility, which is a vampire. And we're told vampires don't have mirror images. So if uh, a vampire tries to sneak up on you when you're looking at yourself in the mirror, uh, you will not see him or her. All right. That aside, everything else has a mirror image. The question is, is that mirror image identical to the object or is it not? So let me give you an example. If you take a spoon, an ordinary spoon, and you place it in front of the mirror, 
Now imagine that you can reach into that mirror and pick up its mirror image and bring it out. You compare those two spoons, uh, you will find that they are totally the same. They are identical. However, if you now repeat the same experiment by putting a glove in front of the mirror and you reach into the mirror and pick up the mirror image and try to superimpose it on the original glove, of course, you will find that it does not superimpose because the uh, mirror image of a left-handed glove will be a right-handed glove and and vice versa. Uh, The requirement for this non-superimposability of a mirror image is lack of symmetry. Any object that does not have any symmetry elements will not be superimposable on its mirror image. And some items, for example, pairs of gloves or pairs of shoes, obviously can exist as non-superimposable mirror images. And the same thing can be said for some molecules. For example, ibuprofen, which you know as Advil or Motrin. Well, this drug actually comes in two non-superimposable mirror image forms. We refer to them as enantiomers. And it turns out that only one of the two has biological activity, and that's not unusual uh, for chemical reactions that take place in the body, because in the body, molecules often have to engage with enzymes or fit into receptors on cells, and both enzymes and these receptors are protein molecules that are handed, or we say they have a certain chirality. One enantiomer will fit, like a left glove fits the left hand, the other will be like trying to fit a left glove onto the right hand. Now, it turns out with ibuprofen, the inactive version is harmless. So the medication is actually sold as a mixture of the two enantiomers. We call that a racemic mixture. However, in some instances, such as with DOPA, the drug that is widely used to treat Parkinson's disease, Only one enantiomer is converted in the body to dopamine, and that's the molecule that is in short supply in Parkinson's disease. But the other enantiomer is not only useless, but it gives rise to serious side effects. So in this case, it is important to be able to produce only the active form, known as L-DOPA, and that can be done by so-called asymmetric synthesis. And that's an important uh, type of synthesis, uh, important enough to have garnered the Nobel Prize in 2001 for chemistry for William Knowles, who developed this process. Now, sometimes marketing rather than efficacy drives the introduction of a single enantiomer drug. The anti-ulcer medication, omeprazole, which uh, goes under the name Prilosec or Losec, That drug made a fortune for its manufacturer, AstraZeneca, but in 2001, it was set to go off patent. So, of course, the concern was, you know, what what can you do if all the generics are going to come on the market suddenly? How can you beat them off? That's what AstraZeneca obviously wanted to do. Well, it turns out that omeprazole is a chiral drug, but in this case, both enantiomers are active. So historically, it was marketed as a racemic mixture. Now, if one enantiomer could be shown to be somehow preferable, it could be marketed as a new drug and then receive patent protection. So, of course, AstraZeneca explored that possibility. And they did some clever data mining, which revealed that one enantiomer, which they christened Esomeprazole, 
was broken down a touch more slowly in the body. And that was enough to obtain a patent. And esomeprazole went on the market as Nexium. This meant that half as much Nexium would have the same efficacy as the usual dose of omeprazole, which was about 40 milligrams. But curiously, AstraZeneca recommended Nexium also at 40 milligrams, so people naturally did feel more relief. They got double the dose. So critics argued that the same result can be had from just doubling the dose of the racemic omeprazole at a fraction of the cost. Well, Nexium turned out, of course, to be a big winner for AstraZeneca, but not necessarily for the public. So there was some uh, clever chemistry involved here, but whether or not it really had an impact on health is, is questionable. But now there's an interesting new story emerging with another chiral drug, and that's, that's uh, ketamine, which is widely used as an anesthetic and a painkiller, and it also can have an antidepressant effect. Although there has been no formal approval for its use as an antidepressant, of course, physicians uh, can prescribe it off-label, and they have been doing that to patients who were not helped with the standard medications, such as the SSRIs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Now, since ketamine is an older drug and is off-patent, there has been no motivation for pharmaceutical companies to fund studies about its antidepressant effect, at least not until recently when Janssen Pharmaceuticals, that's a division of Johnson & Johnson, decided to explore the possibility that one of the ketamine enantiomers may have superior efficacy. The single enantiomer could then be marketed as a novel drug and receive patent protection. Let me get back to my story about uh, ketamine and the possibility of using it uh, against depression. So... uh, I, I told you that uh, Janssen Pharmaceuticals explored the possibility of using just one of the two enantiomers of, of ketamine uh, as as a drug in order to get patent protection because ketamine uh, is an old drug, long off patent, so it can be marketed generically. But anyway, the, the first challenge, of course, if you're going to market uh, an enantiomerically pure drug is to be able to separate the mirror image isomers. And uh, there are ways to to do this, and uh, one method is uh, based on something we call chiral liquid chromatography, which involves introducing the mixture, the racemic mixture, into a column that's packed with a material that itself has handedness or chiral properties. And uh, by uh, the mixture percolating down through the column, you can separate the two components. So they managed to to do this, uh, they separated ketamine into what they call esketamine and arketamine. Uh, all right, well, then came the clinical trials, and Janssen managed to show that for treatment-resistant depression, uh, the drug worked. and They managed to get FDA and Health Canada approval for something called Spravator, uh, which is a nasally administered version of, of uh, this optical isomer of ketamine. However, the studies did not compare the uh, novel version with the general generic racemic ketamine. And the expert opinions differ on whether Spravator is worth the extra expense, which is considerable. So we'll see. Uh, About 5% of adults suffer from depression, and 30% of these are what we call treatment-resistant, meaning that uh, they have tried at least two antidepressants 
and uh, they haven't been successful with, with their use. Well, if it turns out that uh, the evidence indeed will indicate that uh, Spravator is superior to any other form of ketamine, that would be, of course, a great triumph for chemistry and, awful, of course, a welcome treatment for victims of depression. But we will just have to wait and see uh, whether or not this turns out to be just uh, a very clever marketing move by by. Uh, uh, the manufacturer to be able to get patent protection for an extended period of time uh, for a drug that is no better than something else that is available, or perhaps that uh, protection is very realistic because a Spravator hopefully turns out to be superior to whatever else is out there. But as I said, uh, only time will tell. Let me hit the lines and go to Eileen. Eileen? Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Hi. So the, the question about uh, the movie Awakening, that's the movie yes. with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. Right. The, the patient had a viral encephalitis. And I just don't know, was it due to the Spanish flu, their encephalitis? Because I wasn't clear if they definitely identified. Yeah, well, it's actually, a, it's actually a bit more complicated than that. Uh-huh. They suffered from something called encephalitis lethargica. Yeah. And this is a terrible condition whereby they basically become catatonic, that is unable to uh-huh. move. Their brain still functions, but their body ju- just doesn't work. And to this day, nobody really knows what causes this. What that uh, was. Okay. However, there is a link to viral infections that it is more likely s- seen after someone has uh, had a viral infection, but no specific virus that causes this condition has ever been uh, uh, isolated. Right. Back then in 1918, 1919, half a million people died from this this condition. And then the movie, which was, have you seen the movie? Yes, I did. It was a very good movie, uh, yeah, Awakenings. Excellent. And it was based on a book. Uh, it was the, the book uh, had the same title, uh, uh, Awakenings. And uh, it was, uh, of course, by uh, uh, a well-known uh, neurologist uh, who... Hopefully right, you played, heard of, played by right? Robin Williams. Yes, and and who yeah. was the uh, who was the neurologist? It was Oliver Sacks. Oliver, Oliver Sacks, Sacks was, yeah, it, very yeah. well. And he he wrote yeah. a number of books, uh, including one, uh, the man who thought he traded in his wife for a hat. <laughs> Interesting neurological yeah. stories. Anyway, so the uh, the movie was based on on uh, his experience. Because uh, uh, way back uh, in the 1970s, when he wrote the book, uh, a a treatment emerged for this disease by Uh using uh, L-Dopa. Oh, was that the L-Dopa treatment? The L-Dopa, exactly. The L-Dopa, yeah, yeah. Yeah, then the, the the thinking here was that that the the condition was similar to Parkinson's, where pe- patients you know become uh, catatonic. So he tried L-dopa, and it right. worked. The only trouble yeah. was that the patients eventually reverted to their catatonic. Oh, they, they went back. Yeah. 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 So they, then they never identified that virus. They doctor. That's right. Doctor to to okay. this day, nobody know nobody knows what. Never caused, identified what it. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to remember what that virus was, but I didn't know. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, I was for thinking those of people... other encephalitides like uh, you, um, Yakov Kurzfeld disease and and other ones like that, but, but that wasn't that epidemic. No, 
No. 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 So anyway, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, it's certainly worth watching. It's a very good movie, uh, Awakenings. Uh, I think it was uh, even nominated for, for an Oscar. I, it didn't win, but I think it was uh, nominated. All right. So thanks very much for that uh, answer. And uh, the other question that I asked, why must bleach and vinegar not be mixed? And uh, several people have texted in that answer to that. And that, of course, is because that mixture can be deadly. It releases chlorine gas. When you mix bleach, which is uh, either sodium or calcium hypochlorite, with any kind of acid, now it doesn't have to be vinegar, it can be toilet bowl cleaner, um, it can be uh, uh, any hydrochloric acid, that's muriatic acid, sulfuric acid, any acid, mixed with bleach will release chlorine gas. And chlorine gas, obviously, is uh, potentially lethal. Uh, you know that in the First World War, the Battle of Ypres, right, where chlorine gas was first used in, in um, uh, Ypres in Belgium. It was first used there by the Germans. Uh, the um, sort of the mastermind behind that chlorine attack was actually Fritz Haber, uh, the same man who gave us uh, the process for producing ammonia, which saved millions of lives around the world uh, from uh, starvation uh, because ammonia could be used to make ammonium nitrate fertilizer responsible for the Green Revolution. But he was unfortunately also the mastermind behind uh, chemical warfare in Germany during the First World War and uh, the famous uh, first use of, uh, of chlorine gas at, at Ypres. The same uh, problem uh, can, can occur in the home that is exposure to chlorine gas, if you mix the wrong components together. Now, of course, uh, it would have to be a significant amount of bleach and, and uh, an acid to generate enough chlorine gas to put someone in the hospital, but it certainly has happened. It absolutely has happened, where uh, people have tried to, for example, clean a toilet or clean a drain by pouring down bleach, which basically is not a good way to do that anyway. And because it wasn't working very well, uh, they decided to pour some vinegar uh, down as well, hoping that that would solve the problem. Well, it almost solved their problem of living uh, because uh, enough chlorine gas was generated to uh, place them in the hospital. So you have to be very careful uh, with uh, whatever you mix. And uh, this is the real no-no of mixing bleach and uh, vinegar. Uh, you must also not mix bleach and uh, anything that contains ammonia. Uh, for example, Windex, because that will give rise to chloramine, which can also be uh, toxic. All right, so those two questions have been answered, and uh, I will now replace those questions by two others. One of the theories about Napoleon's death in exile on the island of St. Helena is that he was poisoned by wallpaper. What was the supposed toxic substance in that wallpaper? Uh, if you know the answer, 514-790-0800 or text your answer to 514-800. And the uh, second question, who first supposedly said, let thy food be thy medicine? Who supposedly said, let thy food be thy medicine? Eek. And uh, why is it that when the lava hits the ocean water, it can produce uh, vapors that are more toxic than the lava itself? They're a very interesting question. <clears throat> Well, the lava, of course, is very hot. So as soon as it hits the uh, ocean water, it causes some of the water to evaporate. But water has dissolved in it a number of salts, 
like sodium chloride, magnesium chloride, of course, ocean water is, is highly concentrated in these, these salts. So as the water evaporates, you are left behind with the magnesium chloride, and the magnesium chloride will react with steam to form hydrochloric acid so that the vapors that are released uh, will be acid-rich. And of course, inhaling this can be very problematic for the lungs. But there's another issue here, and that is that as the lava hits the uh, ocean water, it of course cools down. And you know what happens when lava cools down? It forms a glassy material called obsidian. And this means that tiny pieces of glass also can be carried aloft by the steam that is formed when the lava hits the, the ocean. So if you are in the vicinity, you're at risk of, of uh, inhaling not only hydrochloric acid, but tiny little shards of glass. So this is the real concern that they're talking about there, where the lava hits the ocean water. So there is indeed some very interesting chemistry that is uh, is going on there. Um, Okay, uh, I think my question about who first said, let thy food be thy medicine was pretty easy because a lot of you have texted in your answers saying that it was Hippocrates. Well, yes and no. Uh, it has been attributed to Hippocrates, and this is, uh, of course, maintained in many textbooks and in many scientific uh, papers but the fact is that there is no historical record of Hippocrates ever having said that. Of course, he very well could have said that. He said many, many wise things. Uh, but uh, his uh, his wisdom was somewhat limited because, as you probably know, Hippocrates also believed in the theory of the four humors, uh, that the yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and, and blood uh, were uh, what created life in the body. And if there was an imbalance in these, that's when disease would form. And that uh, uh, somehow you could uh, 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 counterbalance this. You know, you, you could reinstitute the, the proper balance uh, with various kinds of herbs and perhaps even with foods. So he may very well have said that, uh, let food be thy medicine. And if he did, he should get credit for that because, of course, nutrition is, is very important. And uh, uh, what we eat does obviously play a role in, in uh, how the body eventually functions. But I think that the card also has been overplayed, uh, suggesting that whatever disease there is, uh, there is some sort of natural cure, such as in a herbal remedy or, or in some sort of food product. So I, I think uh, food is, is very important in terms of preventing disease. I mean, we certainly know that. Uh, people who have a diet that is mostly plant-based and is uh, low in fat and low in salt and, and uh, uh, not too high in calories have a better chance at uh, living a longer life. This this we, we know. But uh, whether or not you can cure diseases by uh, food, that, that's somewhat of a different uh, uh, matter. Uh, so let that food be thy medicine, as Hippocrates supposedly said, is somewhat of an overstatement because there are uh, really not many diseases that can be cured uh, by um, eating uh, food. I mean, in, in theory, there are some. For example, if you're hypothyroid uh, because of insufficient intake of iodine, then eating foods that are high in iodine would cure that problem. 
Uh, but uh, uh, it's very rare that you have situations uh, like that. All right, so that was the the answer to the question about Hippocrates. I did also get an answer to the question I posed about Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon, of course, died on the island of St. Helena, uh, and there are many theories about just what happened to him because he died at a rather young age, although the prevailing theory is that Napoleon died from uh, cancer of the stomach. However, there is also uh, a theory uh, that was uh, that has been promoted by uh, a number of, of, of people, including the, uh, uh, Ben Weider, the bodybuilder, who had a uh, real interest in, in uh, Napoleon and had a huge collection of Napoleana. Uh, anyway, uh, the idea here is that uh, he was uh, possibly poisoned uh, either deliberately with arsenic by the British or accidentally by the wallpaper in his uh, residence. Now, it is certainly true that in those days, there could have been an issue with wallpaper because there was a colorant, a green coloring known as Sheila's Green, which was copper arsenite that had first been produced by the Swedish chemist Carl Sheila. And uh, this produced a very, very bright green color and Sheila's green became a very popular co- uh, color uh, in in uh, in Europe at that time, and it was used by painters and was also used in in wallpaper. Now it turns out that uh, a lock of hair that had been preserved of of Napoleon's was eventually tested for arsenic, and keratin, which is the protein that you have in uh, in hair, does in fact retain arsenic and they found a higher than normal amount of arsenic in in Napoleon's hair. And interestingly, in 1820, a visitor to Napoleon on St. Helena uh, took a piece of his wallpaper as a souvenir. And that later was tested and also was found to contain uh, arsenic. However, whether or not arsenic in wallpaper can act as a poison, that uh, is somewhat circumspect. Now, it is possible that uh, uh, dust from the wallpaper, as it, as it degrades, gets into the air, and that uh, tiny uh, amounts of arsenic can be inhaled in that way. Uh, there's also a theory that mold that grows on wallpaper or underneath the wallpaper uh, can dine on uh, Sheila's green and uh, convert it to toxic gases such as arsine or dimethyl arsine. Uh, But again, there's no clear evidence that that uh, can result in enough arsenic compounds in the air to poison uh, someone. So you can't say that it's not possible uh, because Napoleon may have been living in that room with the arsenic wallpaper for some time, and the degradation of the wallpaper could have resulted in in uh, uh, tiny particulate uh, arsenic in in the air, or the dust, arsenic dust, or the arsine gas. It's possible, although when you take a look at the symptoms uh, that uh, afflicted Napoleon before his death, they are totally consistent with uh, cancer of the of the stomach. So this uh, indeed does make for a rather uh, interesting story, uh, but we will n- never uh, totally know the answer to uh, to that one. But I think the uh, the medical community and and the toxicological 
community uh, basically have said that uh, Napoleon died from uh, uh, cancer of the stomach. All right. Uh, so since uh, those were answered, I'm going to throw a couple of other questions your way. What snack food is associated with a California murder trial in 1979 in which the defendant was convicted of voluntary manslaughter instead of first-degree murder? So we're looking for the snack food associated with the California murder trial that took place in 1979 in which the defendant was convicted of voluntary manslaughter instead of first-degree murder. You know the answer? 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. October 1 was the uh, publication date of my new book. It's called Science Goes Viral and uh, obviously discusses some aspect of uh, the coronavirus, but it's got many, many other interesting scientific stories as well. Uh, it should be in bookstores uh, either now or very soon. I think it is available on Amazon. Uh, and uh, I hope that it makes for interesting and informative reading. So the title is Science Goes Viral, and hopefully it's out there uh, already, uh, if not uh, any day uh, in the bookstores. I also want you to mark down October 25th and October 26th at 7 p.m. on your calendar. Those are the dates for this year's Chartier Public Science Symposium. And as you know, this is one of McGill's premier events. And um, in every other year, except for last year, and unfortunately for this year, it has been a live event where we had hundreds of people in the uh, uh, Mount Royal Auditorium on Sherbrooke Street. And uh, we had uh, a great time with invited speakers and questions and, and uh, uh appetizers, etc. Unfortunately, once again this year, COVID has prevented us from doing this live, so we'll be doing it online, uh, which of course does not impede the transmission or the quality of the presentations. Uh, you will be able to see them very well, and uh, uh, hopefully next year we'll be back to doing this live. Anyway, this year our theme is the science of life and death. The first evening, we will have two speakers. That's Monday on the October 25th. We will lead off with Dr. Paul Offit, who many of you have seen on CNN numerous times because he is one of really the world's leading experts on vaccines. He is uh, uh, a professor at University of Pennsylvania. He's a, a pediatrician. He's the inventor of the rotavirus, which is given rotavirus vaccine, which is given to uh, children the, these days and has prevented millions of, of cases of, of, of infection. Uh, he's a consultant to Centers for Disease Control and to FDA. Uh, so you will have the most up-to-date information on what is happening. He will be followed, uh, interestingly enough, uh, by a mortician. We don't know very much about uh, uh, morticians and, and what they do. Uh, but we will certainly learn about what is involved in embalming bodies, what are some of the uh, risks, and we will hear from Kari Northey, who's a very well-known mortician uh, who has uh, a presence on online, and uh, she will inform us about uh, what is going on. Then the next day, 
on the Tuesday evening, also at 7 p.m., that's October 26th, uh, we will hear from uh, uh, Dean of Alternate Dean of Medicine at, at McGill, uh, Dr. Leslie Fellows, uh, who is an expert on the chemistry of the brain, and she will tell us how we can keep our brain alive longer. And that same evening, I will finish off the symposium by talking about spiritualism, about whether or not we can talk to the dead, or more interestingly, do they talk back? And of course, we will also explore phenomena such as the near-death experience. So mark that down, October 25th and 26th at 7 p.m. for this year's Trottier Public Science Symposium online. All right, let's go online to Peter. Peter. Do we have Peter? Hello, Dr. Joe. Yes, sir. How are you? Well, and you? I am well, too. Would the answer happen to be the Twinkie? Yes, it is the Twinkie, yes. <laughs> so... Um, the trial of Dan White, who killed San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and City Supervisor Harvey Milk, it became famous for the so-called Twinkie defense. That's a term that has come to describe an improbable legal defense. However, the story is a little bit different from what people may have heard, because contrary to common belief, White's attorneys did not argue that the Twinkies were the cause of his actions, but that their consumption was symptomatic of his underlying depression. And this product itself was only mentioned in passing during the trial. Anyway, White was convicted of voluntary manslaughter rather than a first-degree murder and served five years in prison. Uh, so it wasn't ever a question of eating Twinkies, making him into a murderer. Uh, it was more the fact that he was suffering from, from some personality disorder and because of such personality disorder, he also had a very poor diet and he was eating a lot of Twinkies. So that is what the Twinkie defense was all about. No one should suggest that Twinkies are, are murderous uh, items. Uh, there are some other interesting stories about um, uh, uh, Twinkies. Uh, Walmart at one point sold prepackaged frozen versions of deep fried Twinkies. Uh, I don't think they have that uh, anymore. Uh, but uh, they they still exist. Uh, you can uh, buy them in uh, Canada as well. And, you know, there are stories that, that uh, uh, Twinkies will last forever because of all the preservatives that they contain. Uh, actually, that doesn't true. The shelf life uh, said to be about seven to, to uh, ten days, although I suspect they will probably last uh, somewhat uh, longer than that. Uh, Obviously, Twinkies should not be a staple part of the diet. Uh, they're high in, in uh, sugar. They are high in fat. But uh, eating the occasional Twinkie is not going to harm you. And for certainly, uh, it is not going to convert anyone into a murderer. All right. So now we have the answer to the question about uh, the California murder trial in 1979 when the defendant was convicted of voluntary manslaughter instead of first-degree murder, the Twinkie defense, but no one ever claimed that Twinkies were causing the uh, uh, aberrant uh, uh, action by the uh, murderer. All right, let me see if we can squeeze in Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre. 
I, I think Jean-Pierre probably had the same answer, so we have uh, lost him. Also, I had a question online about what is sertraline. Uh, sertraline is an antidepressant. It's, it's in the family of the SSRIs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, very commonly prescribed for depression, also for OCD. The same uh, questioner says, I put a bit of bleach in toilet bowl. Is it dangerous? I, I I don't think that that she means whether or not there's a combination of sertraline and the bleach. Uh, no, uh, putting bleach down the toilet bowl is is, is not dangerous. Uh, it can clean off some of the stains, so uh, it only becomes dangerous if you mix it with an acid. But I don't think that that's what was meant by asking what is sertraline. So these are unrelated. Sertraline is an antidepressant, and. Uh, well, you shouldn't be putting it down the toilet anyway. But even if you put it down the toilet and you poured in some bleach, there would be no problem. Remember, you can always uh, check out our website, www.mcgill.ca slash OSS for latest information on what is happening in the world of science. Also to sign up for a free weekly newsletter. Well, we have once again run smack out of time. But rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.